And good morning. I am uh, Dave Mitchell, still. And uh, it's good to be with you, so thank you for uh, coming today. And thanks for the people out in the patio. Uh, hopefully the sun is not too hot on you. And for all of you who are at home, uh, you know, that last song was such a worshipful, great experience. Uh, I encourage, if you can, come and be here for the worship experience. I think that you will find it a lot more fulfilling. That COVID year of sitting there in the TV on my couch with a dog trying to squirrel away in my lap and all that, worship is not the same as coming and gathering, so I encourage you to be part of this as well. Uh, listen, we're in the second to the last Sunday on the whole theme of worth the risk. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. I encourage you, if you have Bibles, to turn there and uh, read along with us as we get into the text. Worth the risk. Not everybody really counts the cost or is willing to take a risk on serving the Lord in ways that they feel like they have been blessed. I want to show you an example of someone who has really measured the cost, counted the cost, and took the risk of his own life. Is the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer maybe uh, resonate with some of you. You may know some of his writings, you may agree or disagree on some things that he has said or written over the years, but you can't disagree over the fact here's a man who knows what it's like to worth, take a risk. It's worth the risk to serve Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian, a pastor, and in 1937 uh, he wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. And it was at that time Hitler was rising up. So the Nazis were taking over Germany. So it was a very turbulent, very unsettling time. And what was happening is that the Nazi government was beginning to take over the Lutheran churches as well, telling them what they can or cannot do or preach. And there was this group called the Confessing Church that rose up and said, we will resist what the government is attempting to do in Nazi, in everything you can think about of the ugliness of Nazism, as we have seen with all the Jewish population that was mass murdered by them, that was being infused into this Lutheran church as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of those that stood with the confessing church. As a result of that, the Gestapo came in 1943, just recently after he had become engaged to get married, they came and arrested him and threw him in a prison. He sat in that prison for a couple of years. While in that prison, he wrote more things that we can read about today. And while in that prison, he was a pastor to fellow prisoners there. He knew the risk, he counted the cost, and said, it's worth it. It's worth risking my life for the cause of Jesus Christ. He said some interesting things. Here's a couple of quotes attributed to him. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Think about that. How I live my life should cause a non-believer to question their lack of faith in Jesus Christ. It's sort of like light and salt that draws people into the Lord. He also said this, salvation is free but discipleship will cost you your life. And so there is a risk that is to be taken. And that's why we come to another man even greater in so many ways than Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul finished his ministry also in a prison cell. And that prison cell is a place that you can go visit today in Rome. Paul writes this in that prison cell. As he's dying, he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is 
uh, laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul writes that as his last will and testament. These are the last words of the Apostle Paul. He finishes up after that with some practical things that he wants assistance with. But these are the core things that were the heart of Paul. Let me give you a little bit of sense. If you've been over to Rome, you might have toured there, but maybe some of us have not been able to tour this. Mamertine Prison. Con Can, Can Conway is, is a wonderful Bible study that's on video. I encourage you have a life group. You should take your life group through this. Uh, he takes the, us on the journey of the Apostle Paul, and he concludes his seven-part series by taking us to Rome, and here's one minute of what it was like in the Mamertine prison. Nero was the emperor of Rome, and Nero would persecute many who followed Jesus, including the Apostle Peter. We have no details about Paul's trial or his final imprisonment, nothing in the books of the New Testament and nothing in historical documents. Paul had appealed to the emperor, and so we presume that he did appear before him. Tradition holds that he spent his last days here in the Mamertine prison. The conditions would have been horrifying. It's possible he was flogged and tortured, and he would have been chained, shackled, by his wrists and feet. The cell would have also been used as a latrine without any facilities for washing. So it would have been filthy and foul. In fact, prisoners had to rely on friends even to bring them food. So Paul's last days probably spent here shackled like an animal, living in his own waste, cold, naked, hungry, awaiting execution. Paul wrote, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. thinking about that as he sat there in that cell with his own stench and no relief. I'm thinking to myself, if I'm the Apostle Paul, I'm not saying I've kept the faith. What I likely would be saying is that, Lord, I've served you as well as I can, and this is the thanks I get. This is how my life ends. I thought I would be sitting on the beach with a beautiful palace enjoying the, the ocean view. I thought I could be someplace in a mountaintop where there's a cabin that, that has all the luxuries of life. I thought, I thought, wouldn't that be the reward of faithfulness of serving you all my days? For the Apostle Paul and for a lot of God's saints who say it's worth the risk, they end up like this, and it's not easy, and it's awful. And there could be a bitterness that swells up in our hearts because we think, God, life is simply not fair. Why did I serve you so hard all these days to end up like this? Maybe some of us have experiences like this. Maybe you're going through something now. You say, Lord, this, just, this is just simply unfair that I have to live with this after working so hard to be faithful to you. God, how about your faithfulness to me? 
And this is where the Apostle Paul was, was living his life. And so he says in the earlier portion of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Eric covered last week, one of the opening phrases he says is, be ready in season and out of season. That was a lousy season of Paul's life, sitting in that Mamertine prison. But he says, even there, I want you to be ready. And that theme of be ready is where I want to take it through the rest of the passage as well. It's an interesting Greek word, that word ready. It means to assemble. It means to gather things together. Sort of getting ready for the next thing that God has for us. It's not sitting back and stopping, but it's assembling all things together so I can move forward with what God still has in store for me. So Paul's thinking, I'm sitting here in this cell, and I'm excited about gathering everything together that I've been doing, including friends bringing my coat. I want to gather it all together because I don't know what God has in store for me yet, but I'm going to keep the faith no matter what. So the idea of being ready is assembling together our lives so that we can move forward as God leads us and prompts us. He says, I want you to be ready for, number one, your departure. And the word departure I'll define here in just a moment, but he says here in this passage, for I'm already, and I would put into parentheses my words, I am now ready. I am now ready, being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. He knows he's going to die. Two interesting words, the drink offering. Drink offering is not something that we're probably very familiar with in many circles. It's not something we practice, most of us as believers in Jesus. But the drink offering is something that Paul, as a Jewish leader, would think about the rabbi or the priest would go before the altar, and in the altar are these hot coals that were being used for the sacrifice of various animals. And what the, according to Leviticus, what the rabbi would do or the priest would do, he would take that wine and pour it on those hot coals, and that became a drink offering to God. And what Paul is saying, metaphorically, if you will, my death is like a drink offering to God. It's like this beautiful fragrance of wine steaming to the nostrils of the Father in heaven. That's what death of a believer is like to God. It's a sweet fragrance. That's why Paul, or the psalmist says in 116, uh, that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of God's saints. Because God says your death as a believer is like the fragrance of the steam of wine on the hot coals of sacrifice. Paul says, that's what my death is going to be like. And then he talks about his departure. The word departure is used in a variety of settings. It's used of a military that are tearing down camp, packing everything up so they can head home. It's also used of a ship with a sail up, and the wind is blowing that ship to the shore so they can arrive at home. And what Paul is saying is that the time is to gather together, to be ready to gather everything together so that I finally land in the home base that God had designed for me. And there's a sense, sort of the sense of this particular verse in my mind that it's sort of like uh, that, that today our lives, this temporary life in which you and I live that feels sort of permanent but it's not, that, that this life is sort of the preface of the book and that he's waiting to our, for our departure so that we can actually begin the first chapter of the book that God has written for us in heaven. So all of this is preliminary, like a drink offering before God for the departure that is for most of us yet to arrive. So God says, be ready, be ready. If you were to die today, would you be ready? 
And I was reminded at a funeral just yesterday of a dear, dear man at age 59, just finished mountain biking, came down to the parking lot, and he died. Who would have thought? Fit as could be, a gracious, lovely man, and God took him. Why? Be ready. It's a reminder to me once again, because you never know when that day is going to come. So be ready for the departure. Secondly, you need to be ready by finishing well. The idea of finishing well, I want to drill down on these three phrases that Paul talks about here. He says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. And he uses some terms that are sort of relevant to what the Olympics were here recently for us, because the idea of this I have fought is this whole idea of sort of this wrestling match, of gathering together the strength that God would give to me to wrestle through on the issues, sometimes including persecution, as the Apostle Paul was going through it. And then he says the word fight. The word fight is the Greek word agon, A-G-O-N. We get the English word agony from it. So there are some times when it is agonizing to continue to serve the Lord. It's not always easy. There's pain in ministry. And sometimes the reward is a prison cell at the end of your life, like Paul, like Bonhoeffer. And so it's, it, I don't intend it to be a negative or a, sort of a downtrodden thing, but it is certainly a reality check that sometimes we just don't end up the where we thought we would. But it's important that we keep the good fight. Now, what is a good fight? I'm going to rattle off a whole bunch of things that I think reflect a good fight. And then I want to kind of compare that with what is a bad fight. Here are some things that are good fights, good agonizing things to work hard at. And these are those. To fight to love unlovely people, that's a good fight. To fight to forgive those who hurt you is a good fight. To fight to live a holy life where sin is increasingly irrelevant or even diminished in its nature. To remain holy in a world that says you have permission to sin and we're no longer going no to call it sin. But fight to remain holy in a word, world where relevance is changing sin. Fight to save a marriage that is broken. That's a good fight. And let me just pause here. We, we love to see good fights where marriages are held together, so therefore I'm going to parenthetically say congratulations to Merle and Shirley Johnson for their 65 years of marriage. They are right there, I see them. So congratulations to you. Have you had a few good fights in 65 years? Is that dearth? Okay. okay, thumbs up, yeah. I've had a good fights in my 47 years, so yeah, I know what you mean. But fight to save a marriage, because some of us are experiencing brokenness there. Fight to heal a heart that was wounded, maybe now, maybe in your childhood. Fight to find healing for that. Do whatever it takes to find that healing. Fight to unite a church with division. Fight to find common ground and, and those things that unify us as a church, not those things that divide us as a church. Fight to witness to a difficult neighbor that may be driving you nuts, but it's important to extend that kind of love to them as well. Fight to be patient with a child that is disobedient. Fight to know God's truth and live it fully. Fight to persevere when life is unfair, like Mamertine prison for Paul. Fight to renew after a failure. 
Fight to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And fight to know the difference between a good and a bad fight. You know, I was kind of reminded even last night again. Last Sunday I preached at another church. And last Saturday night, one of our neighbors, we love all of our neighbors. We work hard to try to love our neighbors, and sometimes we do it imperfectly, with imperfection. Yeah. Easy for you to say, Ken. Thank you. For, thank you. I'm so glad that Ken still sits in the front row and <laughs> fills in the blanks for me. Thank you. One of our neighbors, you know, I was preaching last Sunday in another church, as I said, and uh, that night before, the, they had some kind of a party going on. It's like midnight. It's between 12 and 1, and the music is still blurring. The girls are still screaming, and it's loud, and I see, and I need to get to sleep. I need some sleep. I go to another part of the house. It doesn't do any good. And so frustrated, so frustrated. Then last night, same screaming that's going on until midnight. These little kids, until midnight. Little kids at midnight. I say, what are you doing up at midnight, little kids? <laughs> and you know what my heart wants to do at that point? I want to march over there across the street, and I want to pound on that door. And I would say, what in the world are you doing? You're making too much noise. You're bothering all the neighbors. Would you please stop it? You're driving me nuts. Now, then my heart, that would be something I feel like I want to do. That would be a bad fight. Okay? That's a bad fight. What's a good fight? A good fight is to ignore it. A good fight is that when I see that neighbor today or tomorrow, I say, hey, how you doing? It's good to see you. Your yard looks great today. <laughs> Thank you for fixing your home up. It looks wonderful. That's a good fight because God says, I want you to fight for those things. A, a bad fight is fighting for things that are temporary or insignificant in the greater scheme of God's kingdom that have to do with this world but not God's world. So bad fights are things that are selfishly motivated out of anger. That's a bad fight. A good fight has to do with eternal values that the kingdom of God calls us all into, that we all will do now, and maybe we will continue to do it in heaven. That's to love people, to love people, even those that are hard to love. Paul says, I have fought a good fight, and he invites you and me to be part of good fights, good, agonizing, working hard to serve him. And then fight until you finish the cross of the finish line, until you cross the finish line, I should say. Fight until that time comes. I was intrigued at the Olympics. Uh, we catched a number of episodes of the Olympics, and here's this runner, Safan Hassan. She's running the 1,500 meters, one of the prelim of the race, and she trips on the last lap. She trips over another contestant. She falls to the ground. She gets back up. And you may or may not be able to see it on the screen, but you can see Safan Hassan is in the lead, and she crosses the line first. And I thought that's a good illustration of sometimes the way life is. Because we're running as hard as we can, and we're trying to be faithful. Well, I suspect that most of us in this room are trying to be faithful to what God has called us to do. But sometimes we fall. Sometimes we mess up. Sometimes people find out that we messed up, and we didn't want them to find out that we messed up. But we're in the ministry of helping those who fall get back up and help them to finish across the line, maybe even first. We don't dispose of those that fall. We, we help recover those who fall. That should be the mandate of Calvary Church. So what counts is not 
where you fell, but where you finish. And that's what God wants with us. Fight until you cross the finish line. And what is the finish line? The finish line is death. Because I've lived so long, because I have lived as long as I've lived, not so long, sort of so long, for some of you really long, I get it, I'm reading your minds, it's easy now to look at certain situations and say, you know, if I had died at this point in my life, I would have thought that person who fell never got back up. For example, we have friends that we have known for decades now, leaders in one of our previous churches, and he fell. He was chairman of the board. Uh, he and his wife were in intricately involved in our ministry. We were very dependent upon them, and he fell. He fell into adultery, multiple times of adultery, and it had an impact upon his children, and his children had a very rough go of it, and some of them began to live a lifestyle that was terribly immoral, and it was tragic. As a result, his wife finally divorced him. And if I had died at that point, I would have thought, what a, what a tragic fall that there is no redemption for, just tragic. For two years, they remained divorced, and it was a very sad situation for all of them, obviously, for us as well. She came up and stayed with us for a while, the wife. And we try to care for them as best we can. And it was interesting because the husband who fell decided, I want to get back up. I don't want to stay this way. I don't want to finish my life. I, I don't want to cross the finish line as a failure. I want to get back up and maybe finish across the line before everyone else. I want to be number one of the ones that God picks up who falls. And so he did everything he needed to do, including going to therapy, and for prayer, and discovered some injuries in his past with his mother, and things came to the light of day where God brought healing, correction, righteousness. And then two years after the divorce, he calls me up and says, Dave, we're getting back together. And I said, wow, really? I can't believe it. She's forgiven you? Yes. And so he invited me to come and perform at their wedding ceremony as they once again remarried each other. And what a celebration that was. And now I follow them still, and their children are writing Christian songs and singing Christian songs and they're doing Christian ministry and really present, presenting themselves as deep, deep followers of Jesus Christ. And so what happens is it's not where you fall, it's where you finish and they're finishing well. You, you have to give space and time to see how people can finish well. And then he also says this, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. So I want to work hard to finish the course. Just sort of partly personal that nobody here maybe cares except for my wife. Um, my hours here, just so you know, I've been here for 25 years, but my hours, I've cut back to 50%, so I'm only half time here anymore. So you may or may not see me around sometimes, and that's okay. But I recognize that I'm not finished yet. As far as I know, I'm still alive. And so therefore, God still says, Dave, stick with it. So because I've cut back to 50%, now I have 
theoretically, of 40 hours that I still have available to me. And sometimes I thought, well, that would be great to have another 50% so I can have dinner at 4 o'clock, watch Jeopardy at 7 o'clock, and go to bed at 7.30. I thought, what a great life that would be. What a great life. I can't wait to do that. And then sleep in in the morning and, and uh, watch The Price is Right and say, is it 4 o'clock yet? And, but I decided to not do that. So now I work for two hospices that takes up the other 40, or, other, or the other portion of the 40 hours. I spend time with people who are dying, who have six months to live or less, and you go and you invest your time with them. And it says, I have kept the faith. Let me give you one example. I was with this dear woman who's 90 years old, kind of homebound. And she said, well, how you doing, chaplain? I said, well, I'm doing great, great, you know. And as we went back and forth, she says, well, my ministry now, I can't get out of the chair. She's got cancer and a catheter and all those kind of things. I really can't do much like I used to do. I can't even go to church anymore physically. I just can't do it. She said, but I'm not done. I'm still ministering. I said, really, tell me about that. She says, my ministry now is a ministry of prayer. I pray for my neighbor who is in the hospital right now. I pray for this neighbor over there. I pray for the people who are working in your hospice. And she said, what time is your church service on Sunday, this, this today? I said, well, it starts at 9 o'clock. She says, okay, at 9 o'clock, I'm going to be praying for you, talking to me. So she's praying for me right now. So I hope her prayers are answered, <laughs> right? <laughs> You know, hope, hopefully in a good way. But here's an example of keeping the faith. Keeping the faith. Some of you may be just a little bit older than me, and you may feel like you're just sort of winding down, and what else is there for me to do? And I encourage you to find ways to serve the Lord, even if it's sitting in your recliner, praying through the church book, praying for Pastor Eric Wakeling, praying for the elders of this church, Pray for them. This has been a hard season for uh, the leaders of our church. They need your prayers. If you can't do anything else, would you lift them up that God would give them wisdom and encouragement and support and bless them in all that they do and that we as a church would be an encouragement to them to continue to lift up them for the work that is yet to be done so that we all keep the faith. And so there's another way that I wanted to show you that you can also serve the Lord if you think you're at the end of your life and you don't have much time left and <laughs> you can't do anything. Well, let me tell you about another ministry I've become involved with. It's not good enough that I'm working here and at hospices. I, I feel like I can still do more. And so there's a ministry called Soul Rapha. Soul, we know what soul means. Rapha is the Hebrew word for healing, like Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. It is a healing of the soul. It's a ministry to those who, like in hospice, are in a convalescent place, and there is no place for them else to go, and they can't have visitors. During COVID especially, people were lonely. I have hospice patients that took the medicine to kill themselves because they couldn't stand living this way of loneliness any, any longer. We have doctors that are saying people are dying more of loneliness than they are of COVID. And that means there's a ministry to be had there. 
So Rafa is a ministry into these facilities and places, assisted living, skilled nursing facilities, board and care, all those places. You can be part of that. You don't have to have a degree of any sorts. You don't have to be able to walk. You don't have to be able to drive. What can you do? See that little QR code that is on there? If you take your camera of your phone and you take a picture of that, it'll download for you a way to send a smile to a senior, and you don't have to go anywhere. But it's a way for you to minister through virtual contact with these people. Some of these facilities you still can't get into because of COVID. And so it's your opportunity to impact them without hardly doing anything at all. It's the simplest way to keep your faith. So I encourage us in these practical ways, these very simple practical ways. God may be calling a lot of us to something much uh, more involved, but for those who say, I can't do much more because of my physical limitations, I want to let you know you're not finished yet. Keep after it. See the, the zeal of what God has placed before you, the opportunities to touch the throne of heaven and bring that throne of power to people's lives around us. So I invite you with Paul to keep the faith. And I love this. When you think about the finish line, Dr. George Sheehan said this, I am at my best uh, meeting of the finish of the line race that when I am just another mediocre runner. Just as we, let me read it up here, just I'm at my best nearing the finish of the line until I am just another mediocre runner. My eyes are showing my age. And then he says, just one of the many run-of-the-mill competitors well back in the pack, just one of the more old men trying to string together six-minute miles and not quite succeeding. But with the finish line in sight, all that changes. Now I am equal of everyone. I'm a world-class. I am unbeatable, gray-haired and balding and starting to wrinkle. And I didn't write that. But world-class, gasping and wheezing and groaning, but unbeatable. Unbeatable. I love the idea that when the finish line is in sight, it motivates me all the more. It's where the Apostle Paul says, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we, what we will shall be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. With the idea that Christ, as we sung about it just moments ago, with the Christ is coming back, it stirs our hearts to be ready for him. Like seeing the finish line, I want to be ready. The finish line is not 65 in Social Security. The finish line is death. So let's keep after the finish line and keep that goal in line because I need to be ready for the righteous judge and there's a lot we could unpack here. I'm not going to do it today, but simply to read what Paul wrote. Because in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He wants to bless us at the finish line with his crown of righteousness, of beauty of perfection, which the Lord, the righteous judge, and he is a judge. And there's a lot that Jesus says about being a judge for those who are not ready. If you're not ready, you will find Christ as a judge. I want you to find him as a shepherd. And so he says, and I will award on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Jesus himself said, for this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not know. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who was ready. He risked everything. 
I love with an SS doctor. A Nazi doctor wrote this about Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he said this. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout, so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed to the steps of the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. In almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. That's a Nazi doctor. That's a witness. That's keeping your faith. That's finishing the course. That's fighting the good fight and ready to meet Christ at the moment of that strangling of his neck. I pray that we are people who are ready, ready for when that day comes for us. And if you're not ready, it means you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You've never asked for Christ to say, forgive me, Lord. I have fallen, but I want to finish the race. So, Lord Jesus, come and forgive me of my sins so that I can have full life in you, that you can empower me, you can grace me, you can fulfill me, you can give me purpose and design so that when I see the finish line, I'm all the more zealous for your sake because I want to be as pure as you are, Lord Jesus. When you come back, I want to be ready. So if you don't believe you are ready for that day, we're going to have people at the prayer points on either side up here. I invite you to come and come and pray and say, I want to be ready. I want to be ready for the time of my departure. I want to be ready to finish well. I want to be ready for the righteous judge, Jesus Christ. I want to be ready. Would you help me feel assured that I am indeed ready? We invite you to come and pray and let God help you because he does it. He does it. He makes you ready. You don't do it yourself. He does it for you with the grace of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your love for us. You're a gracious and almighty God. And Lord, I thank you for the Apostle Paul who in his closing, closing days of life was in this miserable cell. And yet it was there that he said he has fought the good fight. It was there in that cell that he finished well. It was there in that stench, stinking cell that he said, I have kept the faith. And he's ready for the judge, the righteous judge of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would die totally submissive to the will of God because we have finished well. Help us, God, and those who are not ready, who don't feel ready, who may have fallen even this week, that, Lord, you would come and help them so that their life is not about where they fell, but their life would be all about where they finish, that they would finish well. Thank you, Father, for your love for us this day, that we can call to you at any moment to know that you will hear us and care for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name.